This morning, as we continue our study in Mark, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So if you want to grab your copy of God's Word and flip open to that text, I'll read it for us in just a moment. But let me go ahead and pray for us as we get started. Father, thank you so much for loving us, for making us your children, making us your family. And we thank you so much that you want us to know you as our Father. We thank you for your Word. We know that it's inerrant. We know that we can know you through it, that we can know about our elder brother, Jesus, who has given himself for us. And so, Spirit, we pray that you will help us to be good students of this inerrant word. Help us to see the love of our God for us and be shaped by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before I read our text for us from Mark chapter 8, I've been thinking about this this week. And one thing about me is probably true of you too. It's definitely true of the disciples, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. Like there are certain areas in my life that I kind of struggle. Um, I struggle to get it, if you will. I, I struggle to wrap my mind around certain things and, and really understand them. Uh, there are other things that have happened in my life, like lessons that I've learned really quickly that I didn't have to learn the hard way or, or have to revisit multiple times. Like one lesson that I learned really quickly was jumping off of a bridge into the lake is a bad idea. I did that with my friends one time in college. I hurt my back. I learned my lesson. I now know that jumping off bridges with or without your friends, bad idea. Don't do it. I've actually never had to, to go through that experience again to know that I don't want to do it. I've learned that lesson. But what's interesting is there are other lessons that have taken me a lot longer to learn, some that I'm still trying to learn. Like right now, I'm actively trying to wrap my mind around the fact that on Wednesday nights, I need to put my trash out because when the truck comes by on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m. and I go running out to the street in my pajamas, it's already too late. And you would think that after living for five years in my neighborhood where almost every week it was Thursday morning, six o'clock, that my trash was picked up, that I would have somehow, in some way, taken that information and shaped my life around it. But the reality is, on Wednesdays, when I drive home, if my neighbor Keith has not already put out his trash cans, odds are I'm going to forget. I'm going to live like, like somehow trash magically disappears. I don't know why I struggle in this way. Now, I will say this week, as I've been thinking about it, I did get my trash out. I did not need Keith to remind me by way of putting out his own trash. I just took my trash cans out. But I think that's probably because I was thinking about it so much this week. I think we're going to have to wait and see what happens next week to see if I've actually moved the needle on this at all. But anyway, I say all that to say as we look at Mark chapter 8, we're going to come into the story and we're going to find here in our text, Jesus is going to be revisiting some things that he wants his disciples to get. And these are things that they struggle to really wrap their minds around. They're struggling to get it. And yet he patiently comes alongside them and he shows them again what he wants them to understand. And he helps them grow a little bit each time so they get it a little bit more. And he's going to do the same thing for us. So let's look at Mark chapter 8, starting verse 1. We're told here that in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he, Jesus, asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the crowd. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. 
and they took up the broken pieces that were left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. All right, so we come to this text here in Mark chapter 8, and we have here Jesus lovingly engaging his disciples in the midst of what we might call some slow growth. And he's revisiting with them things that they're struggling to get. And to frame up our time of study together this morning, I want us to look at this text and note sort of the two overarching points that Jesus is driving home. Things he's already demonstrated and brought before his disciples, but he's revisiting them with his disciples so that a little bit more they can get it. One is the passion that Jesus has for all people. And the other is the power that Jesus has to do the miraculous. And throughout all of this, I also want us to see that Jesus is being patient with these disciples. So it's like three Ps. We have a patient Jesus, and our patient Jesus comes along his, beside his disciples so that we can more and more understand the passion that he has for people and his power to do the miraculous in the lives of those people that he's passionate about. All right, so first, thinking about our patient Jesus and his passion for people, for all people. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 as we think about this. In verse 1, as we just read a second ago, we have Mark telling us that in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. And we'll note here that Mark says, again, like when, another, when again a great crowd had gathered. Because Mark wants us to understand there is a, a striking similarity between this moment and one he has previously recorded for us earlier in his account at the feeding of the 5,000. Now, some have said, well, Mark's just telling the same story twice. But as we'll see later in Mark, here in the same chapter, Jesus himself references these two unique, independent feeding miracles when he talks to his disciples. These things, it happens twice. And there's some distinctions between the two accounts that it's important for us to pick up on, but there's some similarity that it's also important for us to pick up on. Well, here we have in verse 1, he also tells us that in those days, and, and you may not know exactly what Mark is referring to, but what he's referring to is in those days when they were still gathered where? In the Decapolis. If you were with us last week when Josh was reading and, and, and preaching through the end of chapter 7, we know that they've returned to the Decapolis, which is this community on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And this community on the east side of the Sea of Galilee is a Gentile community. And so what's important about that is when Jesus fed the 5,000 earlier in Mark, he was on the other side of Galilee, and he was actually near his hometown of Nazareth, and he was in a Jewish community, and he fed and cared for miraculously a large gathering of Jewish men, women, and children. Now he's in a Gentile community on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's doing the same thing. He's showing compassion and love and care for a group of Gentiles here. So Jesus is making sure his disciples understand, at least in part, that the good news of who he is, it's not just good news for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. That's a lesson he's, he's already kind of been driving home earlier, just you know, a couple days earlier when he was interacting while he was in Tyre and Sidon, he was interacting with that Syrophoenician woman who was not a, who was not a, a Jew, she was a Gentile, but she came to Jesus and, and he commends her for her great faith and he heals her daughter. And so he's now reinforcing that on a much larger scale that Jesus loves Gentiles. He also loves Jews, but he loves Gentiles, and he wants his disciples to understand that. And here in verse 2, he looks at his disciples, and he tells them directly, I have compassion on the crowd. He, he says that. It's a direct quote of Jesus, and that's kind of telling for us, because 
When he was feeding the 5,000 earlier in Mark, we're told that Jesus had compassion on the crowd, but Jesus doesn't look at his disciples. Mark doesn't tell us he looks at his disciples and says, I have compassion on the crowd. They would have assumed, his disciples would have assumed that Jesus had compassion for a large gathering of Jews because he was the Jewish Messiah. So here we have Jesus drawing his disciples' attention and saying, hey, you see this, this crowd, this crowd of Gentiles, I have compassion on them as well. And so he explicitly states his heart for them, the passion that he has for this Gentile community. And so then Jesus goes on and he highlights some things. Like he highlights for his disciples that, hey, this crowd's been with me for three days. And he says, they have nothing to eat. And if I try to send them home now without sustenance, they're going to faint along the way. And some of them have come a great distance. Why does he go into all this detail in his conversation with his disciples? It's because the way Jesus sees them is the way he wants his disciples to see them. He looks at that crowd of Gentiles, and he doesn't marginalize them. He doesn't overlook them. He doesn't ostracize them. He passionately loves them. He has compassion on them, and he wants his disciples to see the passion he has for folks that they might otherwise be tempted to overlook. And we know that when he calls them to truly see these people, this is an area that his disciples are going to struggle. We know from the account of Peter and Acts that he's wrestling, with it. what's it mean for the, the people of Jesus to be people who are both Jews and Gentiles, and how can he have a relationship with Gentiles? And Jesus is showing how he's breaking down these barriers, and these Gentile men and women are truly his brothers and sisters. He uses a vision to help Peter see it and get it. But we also know later, as the church is flourishing, Paul has to call out Peter, call him out publicly, because Peter falls back into preferential treatment of Jews over Gentiles. He begins to distance himself relationally from Gentiles. And this is a lesson that Peter's going to have to learn, and it's going to take time for him to, to learn a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's true for us as well, for all of us. You know, one of the key takeaways for us is here Jesus is intentionally drawing attention to the people that he loves, and it's a people that his disciples are going to be tempted to overlook. And Jesus wants his followers to see people the way that he sees them. And so he brings his followers face to face with a crowd of people that he wants them to more and more have a passion for, the way that he has a passion for them. Uh, Hillary's read this book recently and recommended it to me, and so I'm hoping to read it soon. She speaks really highly of it. It's called The Hiding Place. It was written by Corey Tim Boom, and it recounts the story of Corey and her family while they were um, hiding Jews in their home uh, during uh, World War II and how they were, um, they, they were sold out and eventually, uh, and essentially what happens is Corey and her sister end up in this, con this women's concentration camp uh, in Germany. And it, as she tells the story of what it's like, the, the abuse um, and the way that they're oppressed while they're in that concentration camp, there comes this moment right very shortly before her, her sister dies of starvation where her sister looks at her and she says to her, hey, we must tell them, meaning these guards, these oppressors, what we've learned here. We must tell them there's no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They'll listen to us, Corey, because we've been there. Here we have Corey Ten Boom's sister who has the eyes the sight of Jesus. She looks at people, even her oppressors, and she knows that Jesus has a passion for broken people, sinful, rebellious people, all people. And then if you know the story, Corey's story, 
Um, she's not at that place where her sister is. She's not as forgiving. She's really wrestling, and, and God uses multiple episodes in her life, but he brings her to a place that she too, more and more, she gets it. And because of the work of Jesus in her heart, she begins to see people, even when she comes face to face with one of the guards who was one of their oppressors in that concentration camp. And then through that episode, she experiences Jesus helping her to see that man the way he sees him. And it wasn't easy, but Jesus does that in her heart. Now, for you and for me, like, let's just ask ourselves the question, do we see people the way that Jesus sees them? And obviously, the, the short answer is no, we don't. We don't see people that way. But Jesus brings people, he intersects our lives with people that we're tempted and, and we naturally kind of distance ourselves from or we overlook so that we'll begin to more and more see them the way that he sees them. And this is an area where Jesus' followers of every generation, we've been called to grow in these areas because all of us come from cultures that marginalize certain subgroups. Like that's always been true. And you and I are coming out of sort of cultural norms and we bring those with us. And even with Jesus as our Lord, there are certain areas where we're tempted to marginalize or overlook or have bias or prejudice. And so we are being called as the church right here and right now to wrestle with who are we easily overlooking? Who are we tempted to make assumptions about? And I think what we need to be honest with is there's certain times and certain groups of people we might say, yeah, Jesus is passionate for them, but it's too much of an ask for him to expect me to be passionate for them as well. It's great that Jesus is passionate for them. It's unrealistic for him to think that I'm going to be passionate for them. And I think just you know, real quick, one of the ways that we see that right here, right now, is if you are liberal or if you are conservative, you may be able to say Jesus is passionate for somebody on the other side of the aisle, but there's no way that you ever could be. Because they are not people, they are enemies. They are aligned against you. And so when you see people that way, Jesus is calling you and me in this season, whether you're liberal or you're conservative, to realize that he sees all people through eyes of passion and compassion. And he wants us to see people that way too. And in this particular election year, we need to be ready to do that. And we need to assume that Jesus is going to help us this year. He's going to put people in front of us. Our lives are going to intersect with people that we're going to be tempted to overlook or marginalize or align ourselves against and see as our enemy. And he's calling us instead to see them the way he sees them, as people that he's passionate for. So if you find yourself on the liberal side and you see a group of conservatives and they seem like all they're out to do is to destroy everything that is good, you're going to be tempted to look at them and not see them the way that Jesus sees them. But he's going to bring them into your life. He's going to intersect your life with them. So you'll have to wrestle with seeing them the way that he sees them as people that he's passionate about and wants you to be passionate and compassionate towards. Same thing if you're conservative and you look on the other side of the aisle and you see folks who are liberal and you want to align yourself against them and you want to see them as what is wrong with you know, our country and you want to be against them. He's calling you to see them the way that he sees them. People that he's passionate about, that he wants you to grow to be passionate and compassionate towards. He's going to give us that kind of, uh, of, of experience this year because he loves us and he wants us to grow in this area. He's going to continue to put people in front of us that we struggle to see the way he sees as people that he's passionate for. And he wants us to remember that he was passionate and he is passionate for us. And if you think about it, that's really good news because we know ourselves well enough to know that people shouldn't be that passionate about us 
we are broken, and at best we're a mixed bag, and we're, and we're actually mostly just a train wreck. And he's passionate about us. He's pursued us. He's been compassionate to us. He wants us to see other people the way that we have experienced being seen by him. He puts that in front of his disciples here at the feeding of the 4,000. He puts it in front of us in the feeding of the 4,000. He's going to put it in front of us in 2020 as we go through this election year. So that's the, the, the first of these classic kind of not getting it struggles that Jesus puts in front of his disciples, that he has passion for all people and he wants his disciples to grow a little bit more to understand the passion that he has for them and to start to adopt that same passion, that stance of compassion towards all people. And the second thing, the second classic kind of not getting it struggle that we see here in the lives of these disciples is they have a short memory when it comes to Jesus's power. They are surprised, or maybe surprise is the wrong word. Like they just assume that the situation that they find themselves in is pretty hopeless when it comes to feeding 4,000 people when they don't have any supplies with them. I mean, look at verses four through nine again with me. Here in verse four specifically, so here we have Jesus talking about the compassion that he has in the crowd, how they're hungry, and he doesn't want to send them away hungry. And his disciples answered him, and they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And we have to, on some level, just kind of shake our heads, right? Like here are the disciples, and the disciples who were there when Jesus did this exact same style of miraculous feeding a few weeks ago, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they find themselves in a strikingly similar place where there's thousands of people, there's nothing to feed them, and Jesus wants them fed. And they look at it, they look at the situation, they look at the lack of resources, they're like, well, there's nothing to be done. They can't see a solution. And Jesus is drawing their attention as he asks for those loaves, those seven loaves and those few fish, and he distributes those again. We have him showing them that their, their view of the situation, the lack of resources, the way that they have assessed it, has not taken into account that Jesus is powerful. Even though they've seen him work powerfully, they struggle in that moment to remember how powerful he is. In verses 5 through 9, he just walks through that process of providing powerfully yet again with a handful of fish and seven loaves. He feeds thousands to abundance. Now, this does confirm for us that Jesus loves these Gentiles. His heart for them is seen in it. But what I want us to focus on is he wants his disciples to see yet again that Jesus is the one who has all the power. For whatever reason, they struggled to believe it in that moment or to remember it in that moment, even though they had witnessed it just a handful of weeks before. But he patiently puts it in front of them again so they can move the dial just a little bit. The needle can move just a bit so in the future those disciples will know his power. And we'll trust his power. And we as Jesus' disciples now, we struggle to remember that he's powerful. We struggle to remember that the way that he's cared for us in the past should be shaping the way that we expect that he's going to continue to be faithful and care for us in the future. That we have, uh, as the recipients of his passion, we're also the recipients of his power at work. He passionately loves us and he powerfully has worked in our story. We can trust him to work powerfully in the future as well. Oh, Wyatt was reading this book recently. I might be picking up on this. My, Hillary's reading a book, and I, now I realize I need to read it. And Wyatt was reading a book, my 10-year-old, and I'm thinking, I should probably read this book too. He's reading a book on George Mueller, and we were talking about it a handful of weeks ago. And I was thinking about George Mueller this week in light of what Wyatt and I have been talking about. And if you know much about George Mueller, like he had these orphanages. Uh, and one of, the, one of the unique things about George Mueller is he did not raise money. He did not ask 
for gifts. He would pray and trust that God would provide everything that he and the children he was responsible for, all of their needs would be met, that God would provide for them. And he tells this one story in his journal that they woke up one morning and realized they had no bread, they had no milk, there was nothing to feed their family and these children. And yet he led the, the gathering of those children and his family to pray. And there was a knock on the door after the prayer of thanksgiving for God's provision, which wasn't yet on the table. There's a knock on the door and there's a baker who had been up all night because the spirit had laid on his heart and he had gotten up at 2 a.m. and baked a ton of bread, convinced that, that it was needed at George Mueller's orphanage. And he took all the bread there. And so God miraculously provides all this bread that morning. And as that man leaves, there's another knock on the door and it's the milkman who, who, has, who needs to repair his cart, which is right outside the orphanage. And he needs to go ahead and get rid of all the milk on it so he can take all the milk off and repair his cart. And so he just wants to give all the milk to the orphanage. And so on that morning, God provided miraculously the meal that the, that, that, that man, his wife, and those children needed. Like that's just one picture of how God shows up powerfully and provides. And so for you and for me, like, let's just ask that question. Like, why do we, like those disciples, why do we struggle to trust Jesus' power at work in our lives and in our world? Like it's convicting for me to hear about the faith of George Mueller. And I've had experiences in my five years here at First Pres Opelika where it's been convicting as well as some of y'all have shown such faith and such expectation that Jesus would work powerfully. It's so humbling for me and so encouraging for me. And yet I still struggle. And maybe you do too. Struggle to trust that Jesus is going to work powerfully. Like I, I put myself in the shoes of these disciples. And as much as I want to say that I would have responded differently, I would have responded more like George Mueller. The reality is I don't think there's much reason to believe that. I think I would have looked around at the situation and responded just like the disciples, which would be like, how are we supposed to feed them in this desolate place? There's nothing to give them. And that's because I've really embraced this kind of American independent, self-reliant spirit. And in that spirit, I look at a situation and I just assess how many available resources are there? What kind of abilities can I bring to the table here? What could I hope to accomplish in this situation? In all probability, what's going to be the outcome? And then if it doesn't look like it's going to be good, I just assume it's not going to be good. And that makes me just like these disciples. I look at the situation and what I don't factor in is that Jesus is going to show up and work powerfully. I just look at the situation and I make my judgment call based off of that. And Jesus wants me just like these disciples, and he wants you just like those disciples to not forget, to a little bit more trust and get it just a little bit more that he's present and he's powerful and he's going to work powerfully. And it's so good for us that Jesus is patient with us, isn't it? Like when I think about how Jesus is so patient with disciples who just don't seem to get it, that's really encouraging for me because I'm one of those disciples. I, gotta, I struggle to get it. And yet he comes alongside his disciples and he, he gently and patiently keeps putting us in situations where we get it a little bit more and we'll get it a little bit more. And we can see his patience here and you can feel his patience. Like I can only imagine in that situation, if I had been Jesus, my natural instinct would have been to be exasperated with these disciples who just don't get it. And I would have wanted to, like, to rebuke them. That's what I would have wanted to do. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just lovingly displays his power again. And he lovingly and passionately cares for people in front of his disciples so that they would know at least a little bit more that their Jesus is passionate about people and he works powerfully in the lives of the people that he's passionate about. And he helps them see it just a little bit more in this episode. And so Jesus has come patiently alongside them and I know he's continuing to come patiently alongside me. 
and you and helping us get a, a little bit more too. So he's going to keep bringing people into our lives that he's passionate about, that we struggle to be passionate and compassionate towards. He's going to keep intersecting our lives with people that he's already passionate for, but he wants us to grow to be more passionate about as well. He's going to lovingly and patiently keep bringing people into our lives so that we'll begin to see people more and more the way that he sees them. And he's going to keep bringing us into places where we can't imagine how things are possibly going to work out. And he's going to do that because he wants us to again and again have episodes where he shows up powerfully and we grow to trust his power to be at work for us more and more and more because he's passionate about us and he loves us. And I think that this moment, this moment right now that we find ourselves in, this is a moment that Jesus has brought us into so that we will grow to trust his power more. I mean, how are things in our world going to get put back together during this pandemic? Like, where are jobs going to come from? Where, where are we going to, you know, where are we going to get the money to cover our mortgage or our rent? Or how's your business going to survive if this, does, if this shelter at home order doesn't get fully lifted in just a few days? Like, how's our community going to recover from this? These kind of questions that are swirling around inside of us and in conversation amongst us. This is a moment that Jesus wants us to trust that he's passionate about us and about the people in this community, and he's going to show up powerfully. He's going to show himself to be powerful. Like This is a moment that Jesus has lovingly and patiently brought me into and you into so that we'll trust him more. And so this will be one more episode that we can look back on and know that our, our Jesus is passionate about us and about everyone and our community and beyond. And Jesus has shown up powerfully to love and to care for these people, including you and me, that he's passionate about. In this moment, he's going to help us get it a little bit more. You and I are going to leave this chapter of our lives, and we're going to understand with a little bit more clarity who Jesus is, how much he loves, and how powerful he is. And we're going to be thankful that he's shown that to us. He loves us. He's patient with us. Let's be thankful for that this morning. Lord Jesus, thanks for some time to spend together as your brothers and sisters. We thank you that you're passionate about us, that you've been compassionate towards us. We thank you that you have worked powerfully and that you are now working powerfully. Give us eyes to see it. And Jesus, thanks so much for your patience towards us. We celebrate you and your love this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.